0: Welcome to episode 15 of the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, maintaining proficiency, and enjoying the journey. My name is Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, a private pilot in North Dallas. And my name is Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu,
1: a certified flight instructor near Fort Worth, Texas. And my name is Mike Hart, a.k.a. Mike Stu, a private pilot, aircraft owner, and IFR student in Idaho Falls.
0: This episode is all about the instrument checkride. So, Mike, are you ready
2: (laughs) (laughs) oh i love my show note writing (laughs) (laughs) so mike are you in all honesty though are you about ready for this uh practical exam you ready to be an instrument rated pilot
1: you know uh last time out i uh no the answer is no I, i i have a lot of i still have a little bit of work there's a reason why they call it the hardest rating i think i i now definitely understand uh I, I felt really good coming back from the, the Texas trip. Going out, I was really sketchy. Coming back, pretty pretty refined uh in terms of my, you know, skills. And then after being off for a week uh and not flying and then going out and doing some approaches, um, you know, it, it I had it all dialed in when I came back from Texas and it just felt like it was undialed again. So so I think another five, ten hours of uh of flying and I'll be there but uh I was thinking when I actually when I got in the plane this last time I was thinking oh man I've got it so dialed in that Texas trip really locked it in really well and the reality is nope I still have a lot of motor skills and you know getting it back you know muscle memory and and the radio stuff I feel like uh, you know the working with um uh, ATC and and that kind of thing is is really good uh Getting the the Garmin 430, one of the things that that I think happens is you're playing with all that how your instrument works in an IFR setting, and then you're also playing with you know what would the you know the the examiner might say. Well, okay, you don't get to use that pink line, so we're going to go just to VOR, you know, just straight off the needles VOR. And so what happened, and this is what kind of convinced me I need more work. Tom uh, dialed. He was like, OK, we're going to we're going to let's just see if we can do this arc off the VOR kind of old school where you you know, go to full deflection and then dial and and then keep, you know, chopping the, you know, doing your, your more of a traditional DME arc. And everything was fine with us. We didn't even have the pink line. But then when we switched to the needles, everything was going great. And I'm under the hood. And Tom's like, you know, something's not right here. Uh, and finally we realized I had not switched over. We had switched from doing the GPS to, to do the DME arc. But when we switched to the, to the actual VOR, we were still on the previous airports VOR, not the VOR for the DME arc. So here I am, you know, dialing to full deflection and then flying to get it to correct. But the reality is I'm on the wrong VOR. So he goes, he he goes, Mike. I don't think we're on the right course. Look up. And at our altitude, I was going to go straight into a mountain. (laughs) Ooh. (laughs) And and what was interesting was we had already been, because we had initiated the arc, you know, while I was still on the Garmin uh, flying kind of the pink line, where it was all well and good, and then we switched, uh, ATC had already switched us to advisory frequency, cause we're on a 15 mile DME arc. And so he said, uh, you know, two two five, Mike, you're cleared to advisory frequency. And so I responded back, no problem. And we switched frequency. And of course, I'm, you know, as, as a student, it's a very busy cockpit. I'm flying the VOR. I'm, I'm, you know, talking to ATC. I'm looking at, I'm looking at my uh, plates and, uh, you know, they're, they're telling me I can switch frequencies. So I am switching frequencies. And again, Tom was like, you know, there's something not right here. And, uh, Anyway, we we recognize the error, obviously, but it's one of those things where, you know, had I been alone and in the soup, that would not have been a good experience. That's why they call it learning experiences. Exactly. Mm -hmm. At the same time, it was the perfect, that's the whole point is you could see that the system's there to protect you, but you you have to be ever vigilant, not vigilant, vigilant. As a CFI
2: CFI and uh, someone who's been through the fundamentals of instructing, I'm going to have to say that all experiences are the res- uh, are learning is the result of an experience, and so all experiences are are conducive to learning.
1: Right. Well, that one was really good. It was, <laughs> uh, I mean, he, it, 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 you know, when, he, when I'm sitting there, you know, in, under the hood, and he says, "Mike, look up." And I don't know that we would have plowed in the mountain, but at the same time, uh, Pomerel Ski Area was right in front of us and at a very unsafe altitude, and it's like. This is a crazy DOE or DME arc if it goes this you know takes you hundred feet above the mountaintops. Um, well has your instructor taught you
2: the um instrument uh, mental checklists for shooting approaches? I don't know if I've gone over this on the podcast before or not. I may have, but have you ever heard of the uh wire six Ts? No. Oh well the yeah, the turn twi- or yeah, turn Turn, time, twist, throttle, talk, think. Ah, the think. No, I I haven't heard the think part. Mine was track, not think. Yeah, track is the common one, but what? Okay, well, here's my question for you, Stuart. What would you do when you get to track? Like, what do you, I mean, do you just line up on the needle and track it? Is that all you would do?
0: Well, it's essentially staying on the needles, uh, be that a a VOR or going through a a glide slope and uh, localizer. See, I don't need a checklist to
2: tell me to track the needle. I mean, you are going to you should already be doing that anyway, right? Well, as a new
0: IFR student, you do need a checklist to track the needle. Yeah, exactly. you have got enough going on. Yeah, you need I, every bit help, of help you can get.
2: Trust, trust me. If I can get them to even get to the six T's, we're on a good day. <laughs> but uh, but I, I modified track to uh, think because what you need to be doing is you need to be thinking ahead to when's the next spot on the approach I need to do my six T's so you're prepared. You don't, you know, in, in case in point, all the students would just fly right past the final approach fix and not even, you know, change the aircraft or descend to the airport. So, um, my, my six T's are turn, time, twist, throttle, talk, think. So, cause once you, so once you've done talking and you throttle and you're turning, you should be intercepting a needle anyway, you should be turning to that heading. So, um, I, I believe thinking ahead, staying ahead of the airplane is more important than just knowing that you have to track a needle, in my experience. Well, you know, one of the things
1: on that, uh, you know, in this last time out, uh, part of what what uh, led to that in some respects is it was, you know, Friday, and I was like, okay, do I have time to go? I contacted Tom and said, hey, you know, I said, meet me at the airport at noon, and you know, at noon, I meet him there, and, you know, we, we now brief, so what are we going to go do? What what approaches are we going to fly? And we we stayed on the ground. We, you know, we planned the whole thing, you know, which airports we're going to, which approaches we were going to do. We filed IFR so we'd actually be in the system, uh, and then got in the airplane and spent quite a bit of time, in a, you know, in addition doing, to doing the pre-flight, just, you know, really not rushing but at the same time, one of the things that I should have done, but it's that I think it's the cheap pilot in me wanting to get off the ground and be using my avgas to fly rather than taxi or rather than sit there on the ramp and and input the flight plan into the the Garmin. Uh, and so when we departed, you know, it made for a lot busier cockpit on the, the departure, because as soon as I departed, then I had to input the flight plan, you know, which which approaches I was going to do. And that, that really started consuming my bandwidth and that I was, it was harder to stay on top in front of the airplane or not get behind the airplane because I had a lot of stuff to do, um, in the air that it, it and it's really hard to keep the airplane on track at the right altitude and, you know, on course, et cetera, when you're still, you know, butts with the radios, and that stuff that really, if I would have thought more and briefed the approach or briefed the whole thing and got it all into the Garmin in advance, then it would have been a piece of cake, I think.
0: I've, I've always made a practice. Uh, I haven't always. I've, I've learned it the hard way. As Stu said, it's, uh, everything's a learning experience. Uh, but I, I've started making that part of my normal uh, run-up checklist is getting the radios, getting the nav set, because I've gotten in the air a few times and realized I'm not ready. I, I didn't program right. in the destination, didn't tune in the VOR, whatever it was. Uh, that really is silly not to do that on the ground when you've got plenty of time. And you're not distracted.
2: The uh, FAA examiners, you know, every so many years they have their their thing that they are cracking down on. You know that they're raging against. And um, a few years ago it was the positive transfer of controls. Um, they were really big on that on check rides. And um, recently it's gone to cockpit resource management or uh, or more specifically single pilot resource management now is what they're calling it. And um, the uh, aeronautical decision-making. So uh, yeah, that resource management is, is going to be really big if you're with a DP or an FAA examiner. Um, they're going to look to see that you set up everything and you know how to set up everything correctly on the ground before you call the tower or you make your radio calls that you're, you, or more specifically, before you pull up to the hold short line, actually. So, um, yeah, definitely definitely set up everything in that GPS you can um, before you take off. Uh, you know, you don't have to load in every approach,
1: but, you know, load in the full approach to the, at least the first one you're going to do. Well, that, and that's one of the things that we also, we also discovered is, and I, I now, I used to think, well, I know the Garmin pretty well, the 430, well, or certainly well enough is what I thought. Uh, and I do, for, from a VFR standpoint, know it extremely well, but from an IFR standpoint, uh, there's, there are quite a few places where it still befuddles me. And yeah, it's interesting in that the Garmin, uh, the way their avionics are programmed is they expect you to fly the full procedure. Well, the full procedure is to go 30 miles further south, intercept the approach, and then fly the full approach all the way in. And, you know, basically when I filed, I kind of filed a shortcut. And the Garmin doesn't deal with that very well. Yeah, that's the, that's the
2: problem we have here in the DFW area. All the departures out of the DFW area come off of our Maverick VOR DME, which uh, the Maverick VOR DME is located right between the four parallel runways at DFW International Airport. And so obviously all this general aviation aircraft is not going to fly directly over this class Bravo busy DFW International Airport to fly over Maverick. So you're always intercepting radials from Maverick outside of the Bravo and um, using the GPS to ignore the Maverick VOR and just have you bring you to the radial, which you can do with the Garmin GPS. But a lot of students have trouble trying to figure out how to actually program that into the
1: GPS well, and that's, that was, one of, again, one of the learning experiences on this was, A, if we would have programmed the whole thing in advance, then the Garmin would have maybe been ready to expect, you know, to do it for us. But to be honest, the Garmin, when you pick, you know, which approach do you want to do, and it's like, I want the RNAV for runway, whatever, and then the RNAV approach, I have a choice of vectors or intercept various waypoints. Well, the waypoint I had filed for was not uh, an available option, from the Garmin, which procedure do you want to select? And again, there's a way to kind of trick it out of it by putting in the full procedure, then going in and deleting several waypoints so that you actually end up getting the, the way, you know, the, the route, the way you filed, but trying to figure that one out on the fly under the hood as an IFR student, you know, it just wasn't going to happen. So, so the is back to your question is, you know, am I ready uh, you know, I think if I go out with the safety pilot, do another five hours of hood work, do another five hours of uh, work with the instructor, um, yeah, I think I'll, I'll be there. But uh, right now, am I ready? No way. Uh-uh. Not going to hit, wouldn't be able to pass. Or if I did, I would, I would be very disappointed in the DFI. <laughs> well, what about the uh, oral portion? Do you, you feel like you're ready for that portion? I don't know. You uh, give me some questions and we'll see. I, I, I still am. Um, I'm still working on that, but, uh, I don't know. You tell me. Oh, I can. Okay. Well, oh, this is my challenge. You, you give me, give me some questions. We'll see if I am. Okay. Well, uh, well, my favorite is some of the flight
0: planning questions. It says, uh, you know, you've got a, uh, a true airspeed of 130 knots and you need to fly a DME arc, uh, and you know what is your fuel burn for that arc into the touchdown? What? <laughs> that, that was my thought exactly. You
2: got that on <laughs> your instrument check ride?
0: No, I got that on my uh, my written actually, but it, it was Uh-oh. one day that I just thought was just ludicrous that you don't know the fuel burn that exact through an arc, and you know figuring you actually have to pull pi into that equation. That's not something you typically do in the cockpit. That's right. And, <laughs> yeah. and one one good thing about the uh
2: the final exam check ride is it's a practical exam. And uh
1: so it, it's uh you know, practical. <laughs> well, well one of the things I heard was and and uh, so the question I think the examiner asks uh, so you intercept the 179 radio into Jackpot Nevada. What's the appropriate VFR altitude you should be flying? Uh yeah. You always because forget it's, the plus 500? Well, no. It, well, the, the fact that it's 179, and then he might even, I think he may even throw you off and say, okay, so it, the VOR is 179. The declination in this area is 14 degrees. What What's your VOR, VFR altitude? And, and the and you have a wind correction of 20 degrees, you know. Oh, I see. So they're trying to figure out what magnetic heading you're right. on. So yeah, you can so determine. basically, let's say the nose of the airplane, you know, you're, you're your no- the nose of the airplane is tracking at at one eight five for wind correction, and your true heading is one eight two or something like that, and then your magnetic heading is one seven nine. What's the VFR altitude you should be flying? So, in, in uh,
2: instead of asking uh, just uh, random oral questions, um, which I always enjoy doing, anyway. Uh why don't I just go over some of the common uh questions students have trouble with on the uh, oral exam uh, that I've seen uh, a lot of examiners' fail students on, and uh keep in mind they're not always mine, my students
1: <laughs> <laughs> hey, anything anything to keep me out of that uh that mode it would be very helpful so uh how do you feel about your
2: uh your regulations uh with the instrument rating? Pretty good, pretty good, I think. uh, All right. A lot of students have trouble with the required uh, equipment um, needed on an aircraft for uh, instrument rating. And there's the acronym, um, if I can remember it. There's tomato flames, flaps, and then grab card. And grab card's the one for the instrument rating, which uh, off the top of my head, it's generator, alternator, uh, rate of turn altimeter which is uh, pressure sensitive uh the b is for ball which is talking about the inclinometer in the turn coordinator and right. uh where am I am I on b okay uh card so and then c would be clock which is the common one that a lot of the students miss you actually need right. a clock in, on board so they forget clock
1: a lot with a sweep second hand or digital one yeah.
2: yeah if it's if it's analog it has to have that sweeping second hand exactly right very good and then uh where am I now? I was on C. A uh, uh A would be the attitude indicator. There's another R. Um and a directional gyro would be D. And uh what I think was the radio
1: is important.
2: Yes, radios, thank you. <laughs> kind of hard to do IFR without one. Yes. Yeah, it is, right? It's an <laughs> emergency. But uh the thing the examiner will ask next is. Um, is there anything else? Are you sure that that's that's all we need? How would you know that's all that you need? And the students get so wrapped up in grab card and the Federal Aviation Regulation that they forget about the equipment list for the aircraft. That may say something different. I know the REMOSes for the light sport for for their day VFR, they have some weird items on their equipment list. I think that they have to have a turn coordinator, if I'm not mistaken. I could be mistaken, but I think after looking in the POH that they the turn coordinator is actually a required instrument in the REMOS for day VFR. So, it, it, for aircraft specific equipment, it's in the equipment list. Make sure you know what's in your equipment list before your check ride. And um, but then also your your acronyms for for general instrument rating. So we get that a lot. A lot of examiners are really big on the equipment list versus the acronym grab card. And, and what, then. What else? Uh,
1: yeah, I was going to say, what, else, what are the other places where people screw up?
2: Uh, some other places where people screw up then is, uh, uh, is going is, of course, their, their flight plan that they bring. Uh, examiners will generally give you an airport where they want you to file a flight plan to. And depending on how tricky the examiner is, uh, the examiner may pick an airport that has a preferred IFR route. Um, and you're going to need to know, uh, just by looking at your flight plan, he can tell if you know what a preferred IFR route is or not, um, depending on, the, well, obviously, the IFR route that you filed. So um, knowing where you can find them, which they can be found in the back of your airport facility directory, your little green book, and uh, you should always look there first when planning your IFR route, um, just in case the examiner has picked an airport that actually has one, you're going to want to file that one.
0: On my check ride, uh, one of the things that I learned on it, I learned a lot on that check ride, actually, but um, was in choosing alternates. I think my flight was from Dallas to Oklahoma City or something like that. Uh, and my alternate was uh, Tulsa, I believe. And the examiner talked through and, and basically questioned why I had chosen that. And through that process, I learned that really Little Rock would have been a better alternative in that case. Uh, and his one of his... Logic was great. It's, it's a big, bad runway with lots of uh, navigation aids uh, and lots of strong radar, so they can guide you in if something's wrong. Uh, right. The other was just the direction that the the front was moving at the time, so that uh, if things deteriorated in the weather, that I'd still have uh, more likelihood going east than west, or in this case, south, to uh, to avoid the weather.
2: Right, right, it, exactly right. When you, when you get to that uh, uh, choosing your alternate, you're going to want to make sure that. Just, just because there's a little A in a triangle or, you know, on your approach plate doesn't necessarily mean it's a good choice for an alternate airport. You're going to want to make sure they have at least fuel, maybe a, a mechanic on the field that can do some, you know, airframe repair or engine repair if if, that, if an emergency comes up.
1: Um, uh, Again, it comes back to weather situational awareness. Where is, it, where is the weather that might be blocking your uh, ability to land at your chosen airport? And then what would a, an airport be that might have better conditions?
2: Right. And speaking of weather, um, uh, on the weather portion of the uh, uh, oral exam, uh, a lot of students miss the difference between SIGMET, convective SIGMET, and AIRMETS, and when they're issued and when they're not issued, et cetera. So the um, uh, case in point, the convective SIGMET, uh, a lot of people say the convective segment is issued every two hours, which is not true. Uh, it's actually issued as needed, and then it comes with a two-hour outlook on where that convective activity will be moving in the next two hours. So um, small things like that, a lot of students get confused. That interference learning kicks in. And,
1: and then the uh, segments are for all airmen, and airmets are for smaller planes, right? Uh well airmets are actually for
2: all airmen that's, that's
1: okay the other way around that's that's yeah. why
2: they're called airmets for for airmen and um and then sigmets is for all aircraft um and then convective sigmet is just stuff you just cannot fly through
0: yeah i think like Mike's the point that the uh the airmet is more significant for a small aircraft versus a large aircraft
2: well here's here's the thing this is this is this is also another thing that examiners, are, well, when I say examiners, I'm gonna just go ahead and say me. This is one of my pet peeves when, when dealing with this. Uh AirMet, Sigmet, and Convective Sigmet, they're all significant weather that you need to. It's, <laughs> I mean, they, they're all they're all information that you need to know for your flight plan, period. They're all significant. Now, whether or not they're severe is different. So um, uh, I try to help my students with the phraseology a lot, and and when describing the difference between the two, and saying, "Oh, this air mets aren't significant at all." That's absolutely not the case. You know, it's it's whether they're severe or not. And right. um, so, I just had to throw that out there.
1: What's interesting is, of course, air mets for IFR. Uh, well, if you're fly- filing IFR, if you're planning on flying IFR, then knowing the air that it's IFR, but at the same time, the kind of dials you into. The fact that uh, in some places it's low IFR or basically non-flyable, right? Well, what what are some of the some stories you have in terms of uh, successes and failures, or uh, uh, when students have come back, you know, their reports to you on uh, how the check rides went? Because uh, obviously, I'm interested. Well, the check rides ever either go very well or very poorly,
2: uh, <laughs> and there's never there's never ever any gray in between, right? So uh, other, for the flight portion, some of the common errors on the flight portion you'll have are, of course, um, whether they can, you know, they can do their procedures, chew bubble gum and fly the airplane at the same time.
0: There's gum involved? I, I missed that. <laughs> it's, it's
2: If you looked at the equipment list, you would have known the gum is on it. is in there. <laughs> yeah. That's what the G and grab card is, right? So anyway, <laughs> so anyway, uh students that will go out and um well they won't stay ahead of the airplane the common errors are really just not doing their procedures uh to help them stay ahead of the aircraft and if you do the the three checklists on every check ride you'll never the airplane will never get ahead of you and i was mentioning them earlier They're the wire the six t's and the before landing checklist if you do these three every time the approach will never get ahead of you and uh For those of you who are unfamiliar with the WIRE checklist, WIRE stands for Weather, Instruments, Radios, and Evaluation. And this checklist should be done prior to intercepting the initial approach fix for the approach. So um, weather, you set up the weather. The important things to get when the weather is knowing where the winds are coming from so you know what your minimums are going to be. Straight-in minimums or circling. Uh, Then... Uh, You're going to want to, uh, the other thing, of course, is getting your altimeter setting for that pressure sensitive altimeter. You're going to want to know that so you you can get to your appropriate minimums without getting lower. Uh, Then your instruments, you want to set up your instruments for the approach. You're going to have them all set up, whether you set them up prior or you know, a few nautical miles out from the initial approach fix, you're going to have to set them up now. Making sure you load in the full approach in your GPS or setting your OBSs and radials, getting ready to intercept your radials. Now, uh, another thing to do here on the instruments is to tune and identify. You're going to want to make sure if you're actually navigating VOR or ADF that you you ident and make sure the Morse code is accurate. Uh, I've seen students fail their check checkride because they didn't tune in and identify. So uh, that's pretty important. The next is radios. Just make sure you have your radio set in for who you're ever going to talk to next. On your approach plates, the radios frequencies that are listed in the top of your approach plate are generally given in uh, chronological order on who you're going to talk to next if you're reading from left to right. So just look to see whatever the frequency is to the right of the one you're currently on and set that into your standby. And then Evaluate. And this is where you're going to brief the approach. And a lot of students do very poorly on this. And by poorly, they brief too much. They spend too much time briefing the approach, which goes into that cockpit resource management. And uh, they they overburden themselves while they're trying to fly the airplane, and they wind up busting some altitude or a radial and, and failing. So keep it simple. Just brief how low, how long, and what if. So how low would be your minimums? Uh, how long would be your missed approach point, and then what if would be the missed approach? So just brief your minimums. I'm going down to 800 feet or 1600 feet. Uh, what if is is uh, I'm sorry. How long is your missed approach point? If it's a precision or non-precision, it may be a waypoint or a time. Make sure you know what it is, and then what if, and in the uh, on your approach plate, the missed approach procedure is depicted in three different spots on your approach plate. You have the top-down view and the side view, and then you have a textual view of the missed approach point. I'm sorry, the whole missed approach procedure. Just read out loud that that text, you know, uh, upon missed, climbing left turn to 1600, hold over VOR. And then your your approach should be briefed. Now you're ready to intercept that initial approach fix. So already you've done a lot to help yourself stay ahead of the airplane once you're shooting, once you start shooting the approach. Then doing your six T's over each waypoint, turn, time, twist, throttle, talk, think, uh, will keep you ahead as you're on the approach. And all you have to do is just wait right before you get to your final approach fix. Make sure you do your final approach checklist, you know, gears down airspeed seats and seat belts seat backs etc get ready for landing and that way once you pass the final approach fix you're considered on final because you're not on final until you've done that checklist or you shouldn't be rather uh it's it's going to be unsafe so uh you do those you do those three checklists you can't met you there's no way you can mess up an approach you'll be solid the whole time i like it very good very good. So all the errors that come in the flight portion have to do with those. Um, in addition to, you know, getting the wrong entry into a hold, we get a lot of that. So uh, make sure you know what entry.
0: <laughs> it, my problem here's... wasn't the entry into hold, it was the exit from a hold. How so? <laughs> well, um, on the three approaches I did for my check ride, one of them was uh, an ILS, and it, that particular uh, approach. There's instead of a procedure turn. There's a racetrack pattern, and so uh, again, the examiner vectoring me in put me in that racetrack pattern. But rather than going a complete turn about halfway through, he vectored me to uh, clear me to go ahead and uh, start the approach uh, down uh, the glide slope. And not really thinking it through, I just turned immediately towards the airport, which I shouldn't have done. I should have continued around the turn, and that would have put me directly on the uh, the localizer. Uh, It probably took me about 30 to 45 seconds after I made that turn and stabilized on what I thought was the correct heading to realize I'm fully deflected here. There's no way I could complete this approach. And so I basically turned to the examiner and said, you know, i got to not call this one off and go missed. And he said, why? I said, well, I'm deflected and I'm not even really established yet. And he said, good call. Uh, Exactly right. You did
2: the... You did the exact, the exact correct thing that all examiners want to hear when you mess up on the on the check ride.
0: Well, actually, on the debrief, once we landed, when he was filling out the paperwork, he said that you know he knew I had it at that point when I was willing to call off that approach at the very beginning. That he knew the check ride was done, that I'd I'd passed it, and it was really just you know formality from that point out. That is wow, a great that's examiner. That,
1: that, I was well. That's also a great call on you for you, Stu. I mean, the fact that. Your your decision making uh, instead of trying to salvage or figure it out and muddle around, just go missed and start over. I mean, that's well. It was a tough call because
0: I could have salvaged that approach. I was fully deflected at that point because I had turned too early. I really should have waited until I made the normal uh, uh, 180 back onto the approach course. But right, right, um, and and I was really conflicted. Do I do I call a missed or do I keep going? Uh, in a really steep angle until i re-intercept and just i guess out of conservatism or thinking i'd already blown the check ride, i just called it off
1: for the i, like ex- I, th- yeah, I think ex- i'm going to put that one i'm going to put that one in my, qu- <laughs> my quiver as a uh, you know well i mean it, it it's it's kind of a double one a with for for the check ride, but obviously for ifr in general which is look if you don't know what's going on and you're you're already starting an approach even before you descend. I mean, if you if you really did lost your situational awareness, why not go missed and, and start it over again?
2: Well, the missed approach procedure is in the PTS, and he's going to have to see you do a missed approach procedure regardless. And if it's in a real situation like that where you messed up, I mean, because that happens to the best of us. I mean, every now and then we make the wrong turn, the winds are too strong, and we underestimate it, and we're full-scale deflection, so... Just go miss, come back and shoot it again. That's perfectly acceptable. That's what you would do in the real world, and that's what he's going to want to see you do. And um, another thing that, uh, that could be real world that a lot of examiners like to see, I know I like to see him, is um, once the examiner fails your instruments, your partial panel instruments, your attitude and your gyro, simulate that he's ATC, uh, simulate declaring an emergency, and request vectors to final. If he's a good examiner, he'll he'll vector you straight for the straight in on the approach. No procedure turn or anything with the uh, with, with partial panel. And as he's vectoring you, he can see that you can do compass turns. And I mean, that's all really he's looking for. So there's no need to do a full approach uh, partial panel and just making it hard on yourself. So um, go ahead and, and turn to him and say, this is when I would declare an emergency. I would tell him that I'm, I'm a vacuum failure and that I'm going to need... Uh, vectors to final, or an ASR, or something, uh, some kind of radar approach. A lot of examiners like to
1: hear that too. Yeah, I'm not sure I could find an ASR
2: around here. Oh yeah, we have we have a few good places to do them around the DFW area, Wichita Falls, and um,
1: I have to see if there are any. I have to look.
2: Oh, they're a lot of fun. They're a lot of fun. Abilene, Abilene, Texas also has a pretty good one. That I've actually done that one a few times. That's a lot of fun.
0: I've never done one, but I've heard that the controllers that, that are equipped for it really like to do them so they can keep their currency up.
2: Yes, they love them. Uh, well, I mean, <laughs>
0: they,
2: they're so bored in those control towers most of the time anyway that they'll, they'll just kill for something decent to do in that tower. So, yeah, they I haven't met a, a controller that doesn't like
1: giving them. So, by all means, feel free to ask for them. Now, how do you find out whether an ASR is available? I mean, obviously, I, you could go peruse and just hunt, hunt through the uh, AFD looking for something. But is there an easier way to see? Or, yeah, or, your uh, your
2: approach plate book. Your if you flip through your approach plate book, and as I'm flipping through mine, I have one right in front of me. You'll find an area. You'll find uh, in the in the front of your book, near the front of your book. You'll find several pages with a black stripe going across the top of and bottom of the page uh, saying radar instrument approach minimums or the radar minimums section of your approach plate book.
1: And here they'll list the ASR and PAR approaches. I'm looking at the, nor- at the Northwest and the radar mins. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, radar
2: mins. This will list, in my case, I have Abilene, Texas and Amarillo, Texas. And see what else do I have. I have an Air Force, Dias Air Force Base, Lubbock, Fort Worth Navy Joint Reserve Base, Let's see, I have Hall, Cheyenne, Shepherd.
1: Wyoming, uh, Fort Lewis, Washington, Whitby Island, uh, and that's it. I have three airports in the Northwest that offer that. And well, those—that's <laughs> it. That's all you have. That is, that is it.
0: You need to put that on your plan to visit at least one of those here
1: before long. Yeah. Uh, oh, hold. On. Oak Harbor. Also, Oak Harbor, Washington. So four, Whidbey Island, Oak Harbor, Gray, Washington. Three in Washington and Cheyenne, Wyoming. And that is it.
2: And that's where you look and see which airports have your your ASR minimums. Now, also, if you go to an airport, if you have an airport, in your, I mean, if you have an airport in your approach plate, but if you go to the airport in your approach plate, um, where you, Generally, where it'll show you the the triangles with the T or the A in them next to them, right. you may have it may say ASR. So I'm gonna, go, I'm gonna go check out Whitby Island here. So if you're just flipping through your your approach playbook, you may see that too.
1: Uh, I don't see that on Whitby. Oh yep, there it is. ALS. Well, at least it has ALSF. It just shows that it.
2: No, that would be that would be the light lighting system. Yeah, it? I was
1: gonna say, hold, on, that's lighting. That's not. It's not
2: always. It's not always there. Yeah. That's well, just for, that's it, just for alternate it, minimums. It may have an ASR there. So, but where you really go is this radar mins because that's where they all are. They're right there. <laughs>
1: Have you ever dreamed of taking to the skies in your very own airplane? You can get your chance and support a great aviation organization at the same time. The 1940 Air Terminal Museum at Hobby Airport in Houston, Texas is selling raffle tickets to give away a vintage Cessna. For more information, visit www.1940airterminal.org. G'day folks, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran, And we're from the Plane Crazy Down Under podcast here in sunny Melbourne, Australia. That's right folks, we're coming to you from the bottom of the world. We're down here giving you all sorts of fun reviews
0: on aviation in Australia. We've got opinionated news reviews, interviews with really cool pilots.
1: We've got discussions with all sorts of people from journalists, air traffic controllers and aviation analysts. So if you're into aviation on any level, check us out in iTunes or visit our website at www www.planecrazydownunder.com and remember it's what's down under that counts.
0: Why don't we go through uh, and just kind of talk about some of the the I guess the logistics of the check ride. Uh, I know on mine it was uh, well laid out. Again, I had a terrific examiner, but uh, before the check ride started, the the, the flight portion started. Uh, we discussed what approaches I had done in my training, which ones I was comfortable with, what uh, capabilities my aircraft had. And we decided the approaches before we ever left his office. Um, oh, that's nice. And that, that yeah, made me be- more comfortable because they were all approaches I had done before. I was familiar with the airports. I was familiar with the approaches. Uh, then it was a matter of going out and flying them. Um, he didn't pull any pu- punches on uh, what he expected me to do. We did the the maneuvers, the upset training, I mean, the upset maneuvers. Um, but I knew exactly what was coming. He didn't uh, surprise me with anything. And it was pretty much just check, 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 check. Okay, let's land. We're done.
2: Right. And um, a, a standard uh, a standard uh, practical exam, short practical exam will consist of maybe an hour, an hour and a half of an oral. Um, during this time, he'll review your flight plan. He should tell you, Hey, we should probably pretend to fly this. So we're going to go out to the airplane. You're going to pre-flight. You're going to set up to shoot to 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 shoot, but to fly your flight plan as you filed it or as you gave it to me. We're going to depart. We're going to depart, and we're going to intercept the radials. And you're going to contact. You know, maybe get flight following, or actually, I've I've had students actually take their exam in the clouds as an uh, in instrument conditions too. So they were on a flight plan. So they would go and. Um, intercept the radials as filed and, and somewhere along the way uh, the examiner will divert him and say, okay, I'm going to need you uh, to go to this airport or let's, let's you, your instruments have failed. What do you do now? Where's your alternate? You know, and they'll try to give a practical scenario and where to divert the aircraft. Once you've got yourself established on the departure. From there, you'll go to the whatever airport that he wants you to go to, shoot two approaches there, um, uh, you know, two different approaches, whatever they may be. One of them will probably be partial panel. You'll probably do a hold there too. In fact, I know you'll do a hold. And then you will come back to your, your departure airport, and you'll shoot an approach into that airport. And if you haven't done a precision approach, you'll probably be a precision approach to a full stop. On that one, so you're going to need you're going to need to do tracking nav aids, uh, a hold, two different non-procedure approaches. One of them will probably will have to be partial panel, and then you'll have to do a precision approach. And if you do all that, you've passed. So he knocks out all of them there.
1: So tracking nav aids, a hold, two non-precision. Mm-hmm. One of those approaches has to be partial panel or I I shouldn't
2: say that the PTS just lists that you have to do something to test your emergency (laughs) skills, which, which is going to probably, I mean, it's going to be partial panel. It's going to be
1: right. Which just basically puts you on compass turns declaring an emergency, or at least certainly declaring a instrument out. You know, you you know, that's one of those things. uh, If you have a vacuum failure, I mean, I, since I have a GPS uh, with with loss, uh, I don't. It's not that I. I, I certainly wouldn't. I, I'm obviously going to be more comfortable if I have all my instruments, but I'm also not going to feel like I've got an emergency in the classic distressed pilot type emergency. Ooh, I would right. certainly call ATC and say uh, I'd like to inform you that I'm my gyro. You know that I've lost vacuum and I'm partial panel, but uh, still have operable GPS.
2: At that uh, point, ATC, as far as AT is concerned, you just declared an emergency. Really, right. truthfully. That's it. That's it. <laughs>
1: well, you that's know. the thing. Is that's a, the, what's funny is I, the only reason I would hesitate to call an emergency is it's like what's funny is I think if I were behind the airplane and and that really was upsetting me, I would declare an emergency. If if I felt well, like I was in front of the airplane, my GPS is operable, everything else is working strong, and I, I'm I haven't lost situational awareness. I'd have a hard time calling an emergency. I'd obviously call ATC and declare the situation. Uh, but in, I mean, the, but I think the distinction is: I I would definitely unhesitatingly call emergency if I do not feel like, you know, that I'm I'm somewhat panicked or somewhat uh, likely to get behind the airplane if I don't, you know, and, consent.
2: And and you don't want to hesitate
1: to declare one when you're on your, your check ride.
2: <laughs> because, <laughs> right, right. Because that, exam, that examiner is looking for that. He's going to want to see you say, all right, I'm declaring an emergency, vectors to final or ASR or, or whatever. Help me out here. A lot of the students, he just puts the sticky notes or the suction cups or whatever he does on the instrument panel. And the student just stands there and just keeps flying, just focusing on his scan. Okay, we're still going to shoot this approach. Nothing's changed. And oh and the examiner is going to want you to acknowledge fully that you have you are now partial panel and mm-hmm. that you are requesting help just in
0: case to get into this airport. Well, it's not required that you declare an emergency, but it is required that you notify ATC.
1: Right. Well, and I think that's the, what's interesting. is that It's a subtle distinction because I do know that I definitely have to notify ATC that I've lost uh, a vacuum and lost my gyro.
2: That reminds me of the other common error on the oral is knowing all your, your required IFR reporting points. Anything affecting the safety of a flight is definitely a required IFR reporting point, and that would constitute as one. But before you try to lift them off, I will remind you that there are a total of 15. Oh. So make sure you find a good acronym that has at least 15 of them on. And that is including both in and not in radar contact. Is uh, what I'm thinking of. A lot of students will just go the little black triangle on the low and route chart. Yeah, right, right. You have you, you have 14 more, buddy.
1: <laughs> Ooh.
2: Anyone think of any
1: anyone? When you have arrived at uh, your assigned altitude. Mm-hmm. Or uh, when you're departing your assigned altitude. Well, you've got
0: uh, on holds too as you enter or exit a hold.
1: Mm-hmm. Right.
2: Got all those. Um, what other things? Uh, any unforecasted weather is one a lot of people forget to report. Um, what else? What else do we have? Um, other things would be non-radar contact if you're going to arrive plus or minus three minutes of your ETA. So a lot of a lot of people will say, "Okay, well, you just lost, um, you know, your radar." And you lost your communications because in the oral, he'll probably drill you a lot on communication failure or calm failure. And so it's, oh, hey, you've gotten to your destination, but you're 10 minutes early. What do you do? And the the answer is you hold and, and try to arrive as close to your ETA as possible. Ooh. Also, lost comms. Lost comms is also a required IFR reporting point. And a lot of students... Off of that because they think, well, how do you report lost comms? And of course, you have your transponder squat codes, so they seem to forget that a lot too. Uh,
1: it, so now it's seventy six hundred, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not hijacked. It's not seventy seven. That's seventy five. That's seventy five.
2: Oh, five. Seventy seven is just uh, emergency. General it's emergency. Seventy six yeah, is yeah. lost
1: comms, and seventy five right. is hijacked. You know, yes. I, I, I guess I, there's a reason why I don't remember the hijacked one. I think. That would require multiple personality on my part.
0: I don't recall hearing about 182s getting hijacked
1: very often. I, I, I don't think someone jumping from the back. <laughs> the underwear elves.
2: He was in the baggage compartment the whole time.
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, man. Okay. All right, well, I'm going to have to look 15. Re- uh, yeah. See if
2: you can try All to right, find you know,
1: 15 of them. I, uh, now, yeah, now you've got, I've got a challenge. You know, one of the things that I also decided is uh, I, I'm going to do some uh, do simulator, play with Microsoft Flight Simulator to to get more familiar with the approaches at the airport where I'm going to be doing my uh, examination. Oh,
2: awesome! We should we should we should get together and I
1: should right seat oh. with you
2: in ten, and we can shoot approaches together. Um, I've actually done that with a few students of mine,
1: and it seemed to work out pretty well. I ought to try uh, just to to see you know, just to. If nothing else, beta test your uh, your your approach or your 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 system, uh, because I, yeah, you know, one of the things. In fact, actually, this would be good for you because I really have not flown a lot of uh, Microsoft Flight Sim.
0: The other thing to try, particularly on Mac, is the X Plane.
1: Well, I have X Plane. You know, one of the, the the again, one of the things is to have the controls. And why I end up, uh, you know, I can boot my uh, Mac into uh, PC mode. And the one thing, one of the reasons I'm going with uh, or have gone to Flight Simulator is my instructor is familiar with Flight Simulator like you, Stu. You know how to, you could, you know, get online with me on Flight Sim and they have the AOPA Cardinal, which has the Garmin uh, 430 so I can basically fly my, at least fly the Garmin and enter it and play with it and uh, learn more about it. So it's kind of, all of the above. For so even though even though I have X Plane, since I, I I haven't flown it enough, I don't have other people who can say you know teach me how to use it. And I'm kind of impatient. It's like I just need to get get flying, not learn the program. And the problem is you can't do one without the other. Well, at American
2: Flyers and at U.S. Flight Academy, we uh, those those flight schools invested heavily in the SimPro flight simulators, which they all use X Plane, an right. FAA approved X Plane. So. Um that's that's a pretty good uh flight sim. It's not as detailed oriented as as Flight Sim is, but you know, it's stable and you can definitely teach approaches in it. So it's it also
0: multi-platform, that's the key thing for uh X plane right.
2: right. Right. Yeah right. it's it's on your iPhone.
0: <laughs> well that was not quite as good.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs>
1: Well, one thing, uh, this is a complete and total aside. It has absolutely nothing to do with anything other than I I did notice I was uh, on Twitter and saw somewhere that at uh, Sun and Fun, uh, Lightspeed headsets uh, are they're They're now doing trade ins for the Bose. So if you have a Bose, you can trade in and get like a $400 credit or something for a Zulu. Nice. Uh, I would kill for a light.
2: I almost, if, I almost went in and bought a Lightspeed Zulu's. Out. Well,
1: you know I I have a the the Bose uh X and I like them but the the a couple things. One is part of it is the combination of sunglasses, a hood and uh big big old ears. I mean I've got big old skillet sized ears and uh you know they just don't fit in that Bose quite the way I'd like them to. And then when you add the fact that I've got sunglasses, and then throw a hood on it, it's like a, there's just a lot of a whole lot of pinching going on. That's
0: kind of why I went to the the clarity aloft is I didn't like the pinching, and I didn't have the bows, which are probably the lightest of the the pinching. But
1: you know, that's the thing is the bows are really comfortable without the hood, and, and it, you know, over four or five hours they kind of start to get on me because they, again, my my ears don't fit inside the cups; they're kind of smushed by the cups even still so i'm i'm hoping i haven't really tried i've never seen you know that's one of the things of living in the back of beyond is you don't get to I, I i don't interact with enough pilots to to have like felt uh what what a Zulu feels like but it, they look like the ear cups are slightly or larger they're
2: definitely deeper yeah they're deeper um in and, and no matter what headset you have uh you're going to feel discomfort after 5 hours <laughs> that's <laughs> you know? true I mean, this—I've—I've I've worn so many different headsets.
0: Yeah, there's a
1: lot of discomfort across the board after five hours. I think, but
0: the, the in-ear are definitely a lot better for long long trips. Um, I, I used to get—I had Clarks before the uh, the Clarities, and uh, I could probably go three hours and it would start to get to me, both the clamping pressure and just the heat and you know the, the fumbling around with glasses and so forth. Uh, when I went to the in-ear type. Uh, I can go a four-hour trip, and uh, actually, I forget to take them off sometimes. When I get out, and the cord pulls me is when I realize I forgot to take them off.
2: Well, flying eight hours a day, uh, back in the day, the X-11s are very lightweight, and um, they don't exert a lot of inward pressure on your head when you put them on, which actually is part of the problem, I think. They don't really without putting that pressure on your ears a little bit it doesn't i don't think it's on as tight enough and it lets in some of that sound so they're kind of right. noisy all right so you like clarity aloft
1: that's interesting because the in-ear you know i, I... It, you have to have the right kind of ears for them
0: uh i've heard, talked to a lot of people that just can't do them and they make a couple right. of different uh those little foam inserts they make a couple different sizes but if they don't fit your ears you're not going to be happy with them they, they happen right. to do really well on mine and, and i love the uh, the lightweight and the they're just totally oblivious. The mic sticking in front of your mouth is the only thing that reminds you you've got a headset on.
1: Well, maybe I could have my ears redrilled. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's another podcast right there.
2: <laughs> I was just Aero, thinking, you know. Aeromedical Aero factors. <laughs> so how long do you have to wait after you have your ears drilled
0: before you step in an airplane? Everything seems to be six months as far as the AMEs are concerned
2: right is there uh, is there anything that you're you're wondering about
1: the the ride, mike that you're not sure of or you know um i guess one of the things are you know a i still have to uh i still have to take my written that's one thing that i haven't gotten out of the way yet but uh i was going to do it a couple of weeks or a, a week ago and uh the uh, testing center, it turns out, that's nearest me is closed. So now I need to go to another testing center. And the problem is their hours are during the work week and it's an hour's drive to get there. So uh, it's just, a, it's a timing thing uh, to get around to getting that. And then, uh, so, the, and then I, I assume, you know, you I have to call the the, uh, the examiner and get on his schedule. And I don't, you know, you, one of the things that is a question is, you know, apart from calling the examiner and getting and saying, Okay, I'd like to set up my uh uh check ride for, you know, May fifteenth, uh is he gonna say, Okay, I want you to plan a flight for here or there and the everywhere, or is it basically just plan on showing up at the fifteenth at, at noon and and mm-hmm. getting instructions at that point? Yeah, he's
2: gonna he's gonna go down the list of what stuff you need to bring. He's gonna tell you to bring a flight plan and where to file it to. He may just say just bring a flight plan to some airport, <laughs> you know, if he's really lazy, if he doesn't really care. But it, he'll tell you he'll tell you to bring a flight plan and where to where to meet him or at what time and what you can expect.
1: Um, OK, so, so bring a flight plan would be obviously it would be for the day of the flight so you can get the NOTAMs and weather for for the right. day you're flying. Correct. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So and presumably uh, but, presumably he was would expect you to have called and asked for a, a full briefing or, you know, that you would have got in, got into the system, called flight services and got your, your weather well, briefing.
2: Well, what you can do and what actually the examiners seem to prefer now is they want you, if you can print off as much weather as you can as close to your check ride as possible and bring that with you. So you could actually hand him a METAR that he can question you about instead of,
1: Oh, let's, you know, what weather did you pick up? Did you bring weather with you? How prepared are you? But, how about I dazzle him by bringing an iPad and, and po- <laughs> pulling up flight and showing the entire briefing on flight? so he's so busy going, ooh, that's cool, ooh, ah. If he can figure out how, he'll fail the iPad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: the, I actually only know one examiner who would probably be impressed by that. Um, the others would probably not be, probably due to their age. Just bring me a piece of paper. I don't need some fancy electron
1: gizmo. Well, the problem is it's like, but this is how I get my weather.
0: <laughs> I mean, I, my examiner I mean, was famous for being the only guy that had a typewriter at the entire airport. Oh, God. Yeah,
2: that that sounds like an examiner right there. That's that's why, exactly right. Um, I know an examiner who's the only examiner I've ever met who's really big on all the new aviation technology. He He likes seeing students with the electronic E6Bs and knows how to use them and will question you on them and stuff, too. He, he really loves all of that. So, you know,
1: that's one, here's one question, which is uh, the E6B I tend to use is on my iPhone. Uh, the problem being I, I, I kind of doubt an iPhone is an allowable device into a test center, uh, given that it well, has the access to the Internet, unless I swear on a thousand Bibles that I won't, uh, you know... Well, Well, here's the thing. Google the the answer to all the questions as I'm uh, taking my exam. (laughs) Well, uh, for the written
2: exam, you absolutely cannot have that in the testing center. Um, But for the practical exam, sure, bring it with you. I mean, he's not going to let you play with your phone while he's trying to ask you questions, anyway. That's just flat out rude, right? So uh, you're not going to have to worry about that. He's the oral exam is also an open book exam. So bring all your your book material with you, and and you're allowed to actually look up stuff in your books during the exam. Now, he probably won't let you look up everything, and depending on how long it takes you to look it up, if you don't know where to actually find the information, he can fail you then. But if you know where the information already is, and you can quickly find it and show it to him, that you know where to find the information, that's as good as getting the answer correctly. So... Um, it is open book, so you can look up stuff during oral.
1: Well, so there's a question: What would you recommend a student take to the to the to the oral or to the both to the written? Because I know you are allowed to take uh, certain. Yeah, a lot of the stuff the testing
2: center provides for you because they have to, including okay. a pencil, paper, and a calculator. Um, you can bring your e six B and your all your plotters. Um, is about what you would bring with you. Um, that's about it. <laughs> okay. You you bring very little into the written test. The oral exam, uh, I would bring as much stuff with you as possible. I'd bring a whole backpack of stuff. I'd bring your PTS, your your far aim, your your low your charts, your approach plates. Um, if you have all your manuals that you've been studying out of, um, bring it all. Um, specifically, the, if you have the FAA manuals that. Uh, Right, like the like the Instrument Flying Handbook and the Instrument Procedures Handbook. Definitely bring those with you to your oral, so you can look up stuff.
1: I probably ought to have them flagged for the various sections. Mm-hmm. Be, but uh... since you
2: have that, but since you have that iPad, you can just get the PDFs and and you don't have to bring the books with you.
1: Do they have those uh, the PDFs of each of those?
2: Yeah, uh, yeah. Them? You can go to FAA.gov and all all the government uh, manuals are available for free in PDF format at the FAA.gov website.
1: Oh man, I don't have my iPad yet. So, uh, so it's a little premature to have it and already be wired on it.
0: With this episode, we're introducing a new segment on product reviews. Mike, I understand you have a new flight
1: bag. I I did get the, uh, the bright lines flight bag, uh, because i really just I was kind of limping along with the really el cheapo thing that came let's put it this way the flight bag or i bought a a uh oh i think it was 69 dollars i think i paid for the uh the headset that i had that i was first started you know flying with so just imagine a 69 dollar headset and it and it came with the flight bag <laughs> oh nice so, so a lot of Naga, a lot of Nagas died to make that that flight bag. <laughs> Did it come yeah, with a yeah. uh,
0: captain captain hook decoder ring or something like that too? Oh,
1: it, it was yeah, it, you know, so I still have that, but uh, anyway, that was my flight bag and I finally uh you know, I saw the little video YouTube on on the bright lines uh bag and and I finally splurged and bought it and man, I like that thing. It it just it Keeps me organized. It has everything I need, and in in the pockets. So it sounds, I, I, it does sound like an advertisement. But the reality is, it it's it's much more compact. It, it keeps the cockpit more organized when I'm solo. Uh, it's a, it's not. I'm not gonna say it's harder. Uh, you know, when you have passengers, it's harder when you have passengers just because you lose that organizational space on the right seat. <laughs> I'd
2: like to take this opportunity to make fun of two of two previous students I used to have. Uh, One of them would come with a Louis Vuitton bag as his flight bag. (laughs) Um, He got all sorts of heck from everybody for that. Um, And another student came with a, he would use this as a flight bag. It was more of a flight pouch, I guess. But he would come with a really large Crown Royal purple felt Mm. (laughs) sack that he would just keep all of his books in and sling over his back and carry that with him. Did it have the bottle of crown in there too? I asked him, but he said no, but you can never trust a pilot on whether or not he's carrying alcohol or not. So,
1: Well, you know, that's one of the things that I, I, I think that that's an amusing thing is that, you know, I think open container, there is no open container law for airplanes. Now it doesn't mean a pilot should drink or have alcohol, but at the same time, it it's an amusing thought that, well, generally,
2: generally the open container law, uh, not having one, tends to take care of itself when it involves aviation. I was just going to say,
1: you know, open container, dead pilot—they're the same, aren't they? I mean, what I, yeah. I mean is, if 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 the pilot were to be drinking, that is obviously beyond stupid.
2: I've had students who, after a uh, a night of hard drinking, uh, still within the eight hours bottle of the throttle and. Uh, Maybe slightly hungover, but I couldn't tell. They just showed up bright and shiny, ready to go fly, and they they seemed pretty coherent and sober, um, not even knowing that they'd been drinking the night before, but uh, perfectly sober, um, would get in an airplane, we would take off, get up at altitude, and they would be drunk again. Just like that. Oh, wow. Due to the the, the, um, air density. So you've seen that
1: then. (laughs)
2: Oh yeah, I've seen people go from sober to drunk just by getting in the airplane and taking off. So just because you're sober on the ground does not mean you're going to be sober once you get in the air. I
1: learned that well, the hard know, way. <laughs> well, well, after my last IFR, I, I uh, landed. You know, I, I, I flying three and a half hours. Uh, uh, three and a half hours of all under the hood is is it's work. It's hard, uh, and uh, you know got back from that last trip and landed. And then I had to meet with a client and met with her at at a wine bar. And uh, it was one of those things where I I posted on Twitter, like, you know, it's, I know it's eight hours from bottle to throttle, but uh, after three and a half hours of really rough under the hood time, uh, how many minutes is it from throttle to bottle? (laughs) (laughs) Because I I needed one, man. It was, well, I should say, and it wasn't like it was hard, stressful, hard. It's just, you know, three, three and a half hours under the hood is, it's taxing. It's taxing. It is. I remember remember being just completely fatigued
2: after a, uh, uh, after all my instrument flying, learning to fly instruments. You are, you're completely fatigued after a few hours. And that's the other thing. They're really, um, uh, they're really big on those aeronautical decision-making and the, uh, uh, the I'm safe checklist and stuff now. So which fatigue is one of them, right? Chr- chronic and, and acute fatigue and stress and recognizing all those and how to deal well, with it.
1: I, well, I think, you know, I think it's even more, probably more crucial in in true IFR. I mean, uh, a good example of, you know, then several times my instructor has said, so, so do you think you could handle that if this was real, you know, if this was real hard IFR and you were having to deal with all this stuff coming at you uh, and you know, it's one thing to have an IFR rating where, look, I, I'm, I'm close to my destination. There's the layer of clouds. It's 3,000 feet thick. I will fly through it and break out underneath it versus, you know, you know, in other words, you're flying VFR on top or basically, you know, normal, pretty non-stressful flight until you get to the end of the, the approach or the end of the, the trip versus three and a half hours of solid in the soup, you know, getting jolted and jaunced around and then having to fly an approach, you know, the whole time.
0: Well, let me go ahead and wrap up. Uh, Mike, do you have any shout outs?
1: Uh, you know, thanks to Steve, uh, Steve for Steve Tupper for, and and uh, uh, Dave Shellbetter at uh, Sun and Fun for uh, inviting us to uh, participate in the not at Sun and Fun uh Guest podcast where we uh, had a chance to, you know, basically have uh, sun, sun and fun envy. I uh, was there a couple of years back and shared a room with Jason, uh, uh, Jason Miller, and and Will Smith. Uh, about to say Will Smith, <laughs> Will Hawkins. Uh, that was those movie stars. Really they're time. all like, uh, yeah, they are those those, those guys that uh, roll with the big boys. Anyway, that was really fun. I I, I really enjoyed it was my first time at anything like that and uh and I I really did miss not or it was I would have would have loved to have been there but it was kind of fun to be there virtually. I really was glad to have the opportunity to kind of listen to listen to that stream live and see all the stuff. I'm still catching up on all the podcasts and stuff that came out of that. But uh, that's my big shout out. Stu, do you have any?
2: Um Well, I would like to apologize to Steve Tupper for having me on the Sun and Fun (laughs) radio. No, it's just uh, uh, they tried to get me on and I was on there briefly and then my mic broke. And that's where I went because I suddenly disappeared on that. But um, your mic broke, but your mics do carried on. That's right. You did a great job. I was listening and I was sitting there yelling. (laughs) Listening in frustration that you couldn't stop, couldn't talk. For the the first 10 minutes, I was like, man, these guys are really rude. They won't let me get a word in. They keep talking over me. And and obviously my mic was broken because I know they're not rude. But uh, it was really frustrating there for a second. I was trying everything to get back and I could not figure it out
0: whatsoever. Well, I have one for Trevor. He left us uh, again another iTunes uh, review that was pretty complimentary. And uh, Trevor's also got a podcast, The Desert Pilot, which uh, I hadn't listened to until recently, and I'm really impressed. It's uh, a lot of cockpit audio that's really uh, intriguing, and you get a glimpse of some of the the Phoenix uh, area airspace. It's kind of nice. I
1: was going to say he <laughs> does video as well. So I, I was I was checking that out uh, all two nights ago. Uh, just the whole. Uh, that whole experience of of looking at, at someone else's cockpit as they, you know, turn from base to final and seeing that, I don't know, it's kind of a, there's a certain magic that comes with the, seeing that. You suddenly are in the cockpit with him. That's kind of entertaining. And he really greased the landing, too. I, I I noticed how well he held the center line. It's like, okay, that that's the one that definitely made the cut. The question is, are there others on the cutting room floor that he chose not to share? <laughs> Either. <I> mean, <laughs> And I would, I would not, I would not begrudge him not what, but that one certainly was a, it was a nice landing. That was really nice.
2: I'm going to have to, uh, I'm to have to mention OMG999, who gave a five star iTunes review, who, uh, who wrote, I'm writing this review because they said they'd give me a shout out if I gave them a five star review. Ooh, that's right. But then he goes on to say, I kid, I don't care
1: about that. <laughs> <laughs> hey, the <laughs> shout out was, nonetheless.
2: Right. He goes on to say, I'm actually writing this because Pilot Journey Podcast is one of the best podcasts out there for general aviation and GA pilots. It seems like so many aviation podcasts go on and on about the airline business. And no disrespect, but I don't give a dang about airlines or about flying heavy iron. Like many thousands of other podcast seekers out there, I'm a weekend warrior GA pilot. and I want to hear about GA topics and GA flying. Then he says, "Dag nabbit!" At the end of that, <laughs> "Dag <Dagnabbit? laughs> No, not not really. I added that.
0: On to other news. U.S. Airways announced this week that. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Pilot's Journey podcast. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, and suggestions and experiences. You can reach us at our website at www.pilotsjourneypodcast.com or leave us voicemail at 469-277-2359. You can also follow me as Pilot Stew, that's S-T-U, on Twitter or MyTransponder.com. You can reach me on Twitter
2: or MyTransponder as CFI Stew, that's S-T-E-W, also
1: at CFI And you can follow me on Twitter or my transponder as idmike or at uh, november225mike.com. You can also follow us collectively on Twitter as Pilot's Journey.
2: Please note that this podcast is intended for informational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your own qualified flight instructor before attempting anything discussed in this podcast.
1: And remember to enjoy the journey. Copyright 2010 for Restude Productions. And one mic.